I'm really excited this morning to uh, get to introduce to you a guest preacher, and uh, this is a real gift to me because I've been preaching pretty much nonstop for quite some time, and it's a gift to you because I've been preaching pretty much nonstop for some time. Um, And I said it's a guest preacher, and he's a guest in the pulpit, but he's actually a member of our church. So Josh File and his wife Cynthia have been members here for a couple of years, and he comes uh, by way of San Diego uh, to Portland, and by way before that uh, from Bakersfield. Uh, And he and his wife were in San Diego while uh, Josh was pursuing a Master's of Divinity at Westminster Seminary, and upon completion of that, they moved up here, and he's been working in the food and hotel industry uh, since he's been here, but also at the same time wants to pursue uh, eventual ordination and pastoral ministry. And so if you've noticed, if you've been here for the last couple of months, we've um, invited Josh up to lead the front part of our liturgy, and now he's going to um, preach for us this morning and in the coming weeks. Uh, And as an aside, as we mentioned in the congregational meeting, he's one of those uh, people that are at at in town that have either either, uh, completed their uh, seminary education or in the process of it or want to go. And we would like to create a pathway for those candidates, those people who, who could come in and do an internship, uh, get some experience, and then pursue ordination. An internship is part of the, that process, is one of the credentialing factors. And so as our budget grows, we'd love to have Josh uh, do more in our church and be able to give him a stipend as he does uh, an actually a formal internship rather than just doing things uh, on a volunteer basis. But this morning... Josh is going to come and uh, preach to us from the book of Matthew. So come and lead us, Josh. Thanks for being here. Brian's introduction was almost uh, totally correct. I have a degree in biblical studies, not a master of divinity, and that takes about half the work. So you'll probably get about half the sermon you deserve today. Um, And it certainly won't be divine, but that's okay. All right, so let's, uh, let's read our text, um, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get started. Uh, this is Matthew 18, starting at verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me, up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants, As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servant saw what had happened, The other servants saw what had happened. They were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. 
Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks God. Brian said, my name's uh, Josh. My wife and I go here. Uh, we love this church. Uh, it's been such an incredible blessing. It's been part of our time in Portland from pretty much day one, um, and a, a very special part. Um, I am a little nervous and rusty this morning, so if you would uh, bear with me, we will get through this together, uh, I promise. So let's pray for God's help as we enter into this time of worship. Father, would you still our hearts from every distraction that seeks to steal our attention from you? Would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see the new life that is promised in these words? Help us, Lord, not to be burdened by the torments of your law, but to be lifted up to the promises of everlasting life uh, that we find in your covenant of grace. Um, Lord, I pray for, for these dear people this morning uh, and for myself that we would all be encouraged, um, that we would move forward not reflecting on the past, but dwelling on uh, the great hope that we have um, in the future ahead. Be with us. Um, bless us by your Spirit. Um, would your word come alive uh, and do the work that only it can among us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When Bilal felt the noose placed around his neck, he knew he was taking his final breath. What thoughts would cross your mind? Seconds from execution for the murder of another human. Blindfolded yet hyper-aware, more than five years ago, he had stabbed another man in cold blood, and now he was about to pay his debt. But, interestingly enough, it wasn't the duty of the executioner to hang Bilal. Um, Under the strict interpretation of Sharia law, that responsibility actually fell to the parents of the man he had murdered. It was their duty to kick out the chair on which he stood. And under this ancient practice of the lex talionis, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, They had every right. A mother and father, already having lost their 11-year-old son to a motorcycle accident, now faced the murderer of their older son. And they were ready for justice. But the first sensation that Bilal felt was not the fibers of the rope choking and ripping his neck, but it was the slap of a hand across his face, a woman's hand. The mother of the murdered son slapped Bilal across the face, and the father of the murdered son removed the noose 
And as they lifted him off the chair under the gallows, he was still blindfolded. He began to weep. And his own mother embraced the mother of the son he had stabbed. And they sobbed uncontrollably. What would you have done if you were the parents charged with the execution of this man? This wasn't the Middle Ages. This wasn't 500 B.C. This was April 2014 in Iran. And certainly we are much more enlightened and not quite as barbaric as as these obviously backwards people. And we would never, ever find ourselves in that situation. But what would you have done? And we don't have to go halfway around the world to find uh, graphic examples of people in need of forgiveness. We actually don't even have to leave our homes to realize that there is sin to be forgiven and that people do sinful things. In fact, if we're honest, the truth is we're not sinful because we sin, but we sin because we're sinful. And the only solution for sin is forgiveness. And so that's what we're talking about this morning in this uh, series that we're going through. I have needs today. That need we're talking about is forgiveness. And I know that most of you have uh, been blessed with a, a spouse or maybe a close loved one whose greatest strength is reminding you of all their greatest strengths. Um, and the need to forgive them has never, ever crossed your mind because even if you tried, you wouldn't even be able to find any dirt on them. But for the few here, the remnant, uh, who um, live with a sinner or have been ever sinned against by another human being, I do believe that God has a great purpose for this text and for this passage in your life and in mine this morning. There's great encouragement to be found. There's great challenge uh, to be found. And I do believe that you're here this morning for a reason. So we're going to look at this parable together and hopefully see God's love in it, see the mercy of his son in it, see the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit in it, and hopefully um, find some good news for you as well in it. So what we're going to do is, is split it up into a couple sections. Uh, there's kind of a, a prologue. We didn't get to read it in our passage, but the, the few verses right before, if you have a Bible, open it to Matthew 18. You can see there um, that the passage right before this um, it's kicked off by Peter, um, well, this passage kicked off by Peter asking a question, but right before that, Jesus teaches on how many, um, or how to deal with sin in the church. Um, it's not our focus this morning, so we'll go through it kind of quickly. But um, Jesus says that when your brother sins, what should, you, what should you do? You should go and talk to him about it. And if he listens, you win your, he, you win your brother. But what if he, he doesn't? Then you go get someone else who you know will be loving and then you go talk to them together. But what if they still don't listen? Well, then you go and tell it to the church. Or maybe church leadership would, would be a good place to start. Um, and then at that point, if he still refuses to turn, then he is to be um, treated as an outsider and treated with the same love and generosity and kindness that we would extend to anyone outside of our body desperately needing the truth. How many variations on a theme do we count right there? Three. So that's kind of the prologue. Then Peter comes up to Jesus, likely aware that the typical rabbinical teaching on how many times should I forgive my brother was three, and so he doubles it. That's probably better. And then just adds one. Seven. Why not? 
Jesus says to him, not seven, but 70 times seven. The numbers get kind of weird here. Um, They're weird, but they're significant. It's either 70 times seven or 77. So either 77 or 490. Um, I promise this is not some weird sermon on on numbers. Um, There's actually not even a quote from Revelation in this sermon, so we're good. Um, The numbers are not the point here so much. There's good arguments either way. The point is this. How much more should you forgive? Peter says, up to seven. Either number is a lot more than seven. How much farther? How much farther do you walk down that road? It, is number, is numbers, are numbers really the point? Is forgiveness just a matter of degree? Not that many times, but this many times. Is that it? Let's suppose that's the case for a moment. How's that working out for you? Let's suppose for a moment that, that forgiveness is just a matter of degree. Not that many times, but this many times. How's that, how's that going? Are you keeping track? Let's say it's 77. Let's go take the smaller number. Um, how many times have you forgiven your brother or sister for the same thing? Or your boss, or your spouse, or, or a loved one? Or someone from your past that you haven't talked to, talked to in, in ages? Is it 77? 67? Maybe 57. Um, or maybe trying to fill in, try to fill in this blank. I can't forgive blank for what he or she did to me. I can't talk about what I really want to talk about that I've done. I can't forgive blank for what he or she did to me. Um, if we start counting the times we forgive, we get sucked into this same black hole of calculating the failures of others, don't we? So Jesus comes and he says, here, let me help you get this. Let me break it down. Let me tell you a story of what the kingdom of heaven is like. This is what perfect pardon looks like. And so this is where we see, I think, three main sections. Pardon offered, pardon perverted, and pardon accomplished. So let's start with pardon offered. Let's get into the story a little bit. The man, the servant, he was a fool to get this far into debt. The amount of money we're talking um, is, is so completely lost in us and it's just incalculable. It's so uh, weighty. He was a fool to get this far into debt and the king was a fool to offer him a way out. If you start to look at these numbers, this man owed more money than was in circulation in the, in the entire country at that time. These numbers are difficult to wrap our minds around. Likely, the majority of the king's wealth had been lost. If the king sold him, like our text says, that he would sell him, his family, and everything he owned, he would likely recoup maybe one um, of the talents. Uh, Translates as as gold. Um, The original measurement was a talent. Leaving the king 9,999 short. This is an untold lifetimes of labor. We're talking lifetimes numbering into the thousands that this man would have to work. I don't know how much money you expect to make in your lifetime. Whatever that number is, um, multiply it by a thousand and you're getting close. Um, Seriously, getting close. So why did he forgive this man? In a very pragmatic sense, it cost the king almost nothing to forgive this servant. 
he was only worth a talent. He was out about 10,000, so why not let him go? Because he cost you 10,000 talents, 10,000 bags of gold. And on the precipice of being sold along with his family, he begs the king. The word here in the original text um, means that he prostrated himself. He was on the ground. And it's really, really important. Look at what he asks for. He cries out. What does he ask for? Does he ask for forgiveness? No. He asks for time. Did you notice that? Not for forgiveness, but for time. Have patience with me and I will repay you everything. It's a silly request on the part of the servant. How is that possible? How in any number of years could you come up with lifetimes of money? But the king goes beyond the man's request and out of pity forgives the entire debt. He wipes it out. He absorbs the financial devastation and he forgives his servant. Here's the question for us, just to get us engaged in this story. When someone takes something from you that they can't possibly repay, how would you respond? And and maybe it is money. Maybe you've been ripped off once, twice, many times. But what if it's something less tangible, like trust, or intimacy, or your future? There's, There's ways that people have sinned against uh, me that have, have derailed and, and then re-railed my plans um, and my future. What about you? Someone's, someone takes love and, and there's no way it can be repaid. Um, how would you respond? Well, the master's forgiveness of this man's debt leads directly to the next scene, which we call pardon perverted. Um, Jesus, he tells us there's another servant, a second servant, who owes money to this first servant. Um, The text says silver, the the, um, currency was denarii, is about 100 days wages. That's the amount of money we're talking about here, about 100 days. We're talking about, you know, three months and some change of work. Compared to lifetimes, doesn't even compare, doesn't even warrant comparison. But here's the question. Um, I don't think that this first servant was totally, totally in the wrong. Stick with me here. So what if it's small? A debt is a debt, right? Are you, are you with me on this? Maybe, maybe I'm alone here. I don't think he screwed up by going to collect the debt. I really don't. Was he, was he inherently wrong to go and say, you owe me what you owe me? No, I don't think so. The man's wickedness was not in the collection of the debt, but in his disdain for the man and his hunger for Vengeance, And, in fact, before this man even had a chance to explain himself, there were hands around his neck, choking him. Do you notice that in the text? That's the first thing. It's not a request. It's, it's brutality. What happens is the other servants find out what this cold-hearted man did to the other servant, and then they go, do they go to him? No, they go to the king. And they tell the king, the master, filled with rage, calls the servant back. One last time, not this time for the collection of his debt, but for his sentencing. 
And he indicts him. You wicked servant, he says. How could you not be merciful when I had showed you so much mercy? Now I'll hand you over to the jailers and the tormentors to be tortured until you can pay the debt. Which is silly because he'll never be able to. You don't really make that great of a living in jail. I've never been, but I could imagine you probably probably don't. At least not a lifetime's worth. And, and considering the amount we're talking here, it's almost like a snide throwaway comment as he's being dragged off. He couldn't pay in the first place. That's the point. He couldn't pay in the first place, and he certainly cannot pay now. And it's at this point that Jesus offers what we might kind of crudely call the moral of the story. And I'll hesitate to use that uh, term. You see it there down towards the end. You must forgive from the heart. This parable is really fun until that part. You must forgive from the heart, or else what? Or else my Father will do to every one of you what the king did to his wicked servant, hand you over to the torturers for incarceration. This is not a happy parable. Um, I don't know if you're, if you're with me on that. I think we can barely be fairly honest that this is, uh, maybe at first glance, I don't know about you, sometimes when I read parables or stories like this in the Bible, it's just kind of, huh. That's it. It's just kind of a shrug of the shoulders and then on to the next verse, something I can maybe sink my teeth into more. Uh, it's not easy to swallow what Jesus is saying here. So maybe you're saying to yourself, okay, so wait a second. Are you saying that if I don't mean it, every time I forgive someone, then that's it. It's all over. Is that what Jesus is saying here? And then comes the religious guilt, right? Here it comes. Get ready for it. Forgive, 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 and mean it, or else see ya, have a nice life. That would seem to be the point of this, of this passage um, But remember Peter's question, which was the catalyst for the parable. How many times must I forgive my brother? Up to seven? Jesus, his response, basically teaches us that counting is not the point. And doesn't it go both ways for us? I don't know about you, but but I love to count the failures of others, and I also love to count the way that I forgive the failures of others. But either way, I'm never in the crosshairs. That that always works out great for me. I I always win in that equation. counting failures of others, counting my forgiveness of them. We're never in the crosshairs. Um, Listen to me. When we keep track of the failures of others, we completely miss the point. Jesus, he's saying, there is a life to which I am calling you that completely transcends these brute equations, this sin math that we dive into and we engage in all the time. But what do we prefer instead of what he's calling us to, which we'll get to in just a second? We prefer the platitudes, the niceties, like forgive and forget, let bygones be bygones. This is how we counsel one another so often. Just forgive yourself, it'll be fine. 
Phrases unable to offer the very thing they promise, half-truths that never pan out. We prefer the currency of payback that we exchange with one another, where we set up our lives and our worlds to run this way. Even with those we love, how often do we save up like stockpiled ammunition another person's shortcomings until we're ready to pull the trigger when they're most vulnerable. Also, we can win. I know there's some heavy, heavy things here. I just want to say, if, if any of this is really true, if any of this story is a, is a challenge for you, that's because God has such a better future and such a better way of life than what we see here in this parable. Because how does it start out? How does the parable start? It starts out by saying the kingdom of heaven may be compared to the kingdom of heaven is like this. That should clue us in that there might actually be some good news here because if it's true that the kingdom of heaven is, is God's new creation breaking into this world, then shouldn't there be something worthwhile to pursue in a story about what that's like? Friends, there is in this story the new creation incubating. So let's look at it from this angle. Pardon accomplished. Up to this point, we still haven't really defined forgiveness, and that should, that should bother you, because any time you get into a discussion about something like this, you really kind of have to define your terms, and so it's unfair of me to not do that. Um, forgiveness in its most basic sense is, is removal or, or payment of a debt. Um, if you ever took out a student loan, if you, and you work in a certain profession, uh, vocation, and you make your payments on time for a certain number of years, you can get loan forgiveness where you don't have to pay as much as you originally owed. I don't have one of those vocations, which is too bad, but more power to you if you do. Also, in Portland, there's actually certain neighborhoods around town um, where if you're willing to move in and live there for a long time, the city will quite literally give you money. The only catch is you have to live there for 15 years. But then a lot of the money is forgiven. Um, And so depending on your feeling about certain areas of town, that might be a great opportunity or your worst nightmare. But um, it's out there. Loan forgiveness. But we can't stop there because it's not simply the erasing, right, of, of debt, but the payment of debt, the absorption of debt. That equation, there has to be equilibrium. has to be made whole and equal. When the king forgives his servant all of this gold, he's still out all of this gold. 10,000 talents, he's still out 10,000 talents. And we can't miss that part. This should be a glaring hole. This should really bother you about this story. Because who pays for that? The king. Who pays the king's debt? The king pays the king's debt. So when someone hurts you or sins against you and says evil things about you and you forgive them, who pays? You pay. You pay. Um, And that's why, for the Christian, forgiveness is not exactly a cheery, happy, um, go-lucky endeavor because, by definition, someone must pay. And if you'll follow with me here, I think there's a lot more going on behind the scenes in this parable regarding the payment of debt um, than maybe first comes 
to mind or maybe first meets the eye. So let's, let's look at, again at the characters. Um, if you look back at the text, there's a king and there's a servant. The servant is responsible for what the king has given him. The servant lives and submits himself to the authority of the king. The servant is handed over to torture for the payment of a debt. And out of this servant's heart, mercy is meant to overflow. Does any of this sound familiar to you? This parable does not just point to any servant, but it points to to the servant of the Lord. The Old Testament prophets, with crystal clarity, told us that there would be a servant of the Lord. You're welcome to, to turn or, or look at Isaiah 42 if you have a way to do that. Behold my servant whom I uphold. Keep the parable in mind as we're reading through this. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Ezekiel 34, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, but not David, David's greatest son, and he shall feed them, he shall feed them, and be their shepherd. Isaiah 52, Behold, My servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. There is a servant who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom For many, there is a servant who took your great moral debt on his shoulders to the cross and from that cross said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The reason that we demand forgiveness is because we need it. We need it desperately in our our fallen state. That's the only thing that can make us whole. But we're looking for it in people that cannot actually provide what we truly need. Our business is with God and His justice, and it's only in His servant Jesus that we find mercy and justice so perfectly united. Isn't that what the cross is all about? The justice of God falling on His servant. The justice of God falling on his son who was handed over to torturers so that wicked servants like us might go free. The justice of God is satisfied in the substitution of his son. The mercy of God is freely offered to any that would have it. But here's the thing. God, it's not as if he is just exactly like the king in this story. He goes far beyond the king here. Here's how. Um, in case you hadn't figured it out by now, we're the first servant. I promise you that. Who perverts his pardon into a license to kill. But when our king comes for justice, he substitutes a prince for a slave. 
Our forgiveness is not based on the mere benevolence of God and, and just His mercy merely, but the fact that His Son is, as Hebrews says, a sure and steadfast anchor of our soul. And it wasn't only that He had to die, but that our forgiveness is based on His indestructible life. And what does Jesus say? The kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like this. But what about this nagging part of the parable that we haven't quite satisfied yet? And it should bother you. You must forgive from the heart. It's right there at the end, kind of hanging out there. You must forgive from the heart. What if it's not from the heart? Can you remember the last time you had to forgive someone? Maybe it was on the way to church this morning. Um, Maybe it was last night. Maybe it was a family member um, from your childhood that you've never really been able to come to grips with what happened or what was done to you, and it never crossed your mind that it had to actually be from the heart. So should we only do it then? Only when it's from the heart. A couple questions. What if the nurse only changed bandages on a wound when he felt like it? What if the doctor only operated when her heart was really, really into it? What if you only took out the trash when you felt like it? Um, Parents, what if you only changed dirty diapers when you felt like it? Parents, what if you only disciplined your children when you felt like it? Um, Kids, if you, if you do your homework and you turn it in, but you didn't feel like it when you did it, your teacher still accepts it. It might not be the best, but they still take it. Even if you didn't feel like it. Do you still go to work, even when it's not from the heart? This is my point. This is not a guilt trip. My point is this. How can we trust ourselves to forgive from the heart when we know that our hearts are deceitfully wicked and not to be trusted? And, and if we're honest, a lot of life goes by without our heart and soul really in it. This is why, and this is how. When we can't trust our own hearts, where do we turn? Psalm 73 says this, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For me, it is good to be near God, for I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. God is the strength of our heart. And actually what happens when we become united with Jesus is that the Spirit of God actually gives us a new heart so that it's not actually our own strength, but it's God working through us that is able to forgive. So when this parable says, you must forgive from the heart, that's actually us looking to God and looking to Christ and looking to His Spirit to empower our hearts to offer true forgiveness to those who so desperately need it. So if you hear nothing else this morning, please hear this. Our goal is not to forgive. Our goal is to be forgiving. Because we've been forgiven. I'll say it one more time. Our our goal is not to forgive, it's to be forgiving. Because we've been forgiven. The point of this parable, it's, it's so vital that we get this. The point of this parable is not do this, but it's be this. Not what you do, but who you are. 
It's not, not that we do certain type of things, but that we become a certain type of person. That we stop counting forgiveness and that we just be okay with forgiving. And not wait to get paid back because of what Christ has done for us. The law says forgive or die. Do you see that here? Forgive or else. The Gospel says that Christ died and rose again to assure your forgiveness. And He lives today as the steadfast anchor of your soul and as your firm foundation. So friends, because you are in Christ, because the servant of the Lord has given you everything that is His to forgive you and renew you, you can forgive as a reflection of the matchless grace that is yours in Jesus Christ that you have received from the King of Heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, if we try to muster up from ourselves the strength to forgive the people closest to us, we will fail, Lord, and and we don't have the ability to change our hearts, but Lord, you are the God who changes stony hearts into beating ones. You are the Lord who takes out hearts of flesh and replaces them, takes out hearts of stone and replaces them with hearts of flesh. Lord, would you work in us? Father, protect us from the great danger of trusting in the ways we forgive other people. Lord, help us to trust so much more in Jesus, who is our forgiveness, who is our servant, who is our ransom. Lord, the needs that have been violated among us are too great to number, but Lord, you know them all. So I pray, Lord, that as we come to your table and as we sing that you would meet those needs through these means of grace in the way that only you can, that you would minister to your people, Father, that you would sanctify them for they, have, for they are yours and you love them dearly and they are beloved to you. Lord, be with us as we come to the table, as we confess our faith and as we sing and as we go from here that our lives will be marked by the same type of forgiveness that you've offered to us. We pray this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.